Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Man on a Mission podcast. Today, we've got Paul Herman in the house, and uh, I'm super excited to be chatting to him about all things rites of passage, childhood, his upbringing, and what currently is lighting him up right now. And uh, the great thing is that Paul and I have known each other for a bit over a year. We met each other at a workshop with the Samurai Brotherhood that was facilitated in 2020. And since then, we've been sort of like meeting at social events. And I know Paul is very passionate about what he's up to in his life right now. And um, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Lindsay. Yeah. So where are we going to start this? I guess for me, it would be a conversation around probably the easiest thing to do is what got you into men's work? Because we were just having a chat offline about, you know, what we think is needed and necessary in men's work. And, you know, man on a mission is also something that popped up. And I just like to hear more of like the story behind what you got in, what got you involved into men's work. Well, um, there was a bit of it around when I was um, doing personal growth work. I started doing that in about 1986. Um, and in the 90s, there was a bit of that, bit of men's work around then. I remember going to, um, and I was, wasn't really drawn to it. Like a lot of men um, aren't necessarily drawn to it because I was a bit of a mummy's boy and I was focused on women. So, um, you know, like I always enjoyed their company and enjoyed interacting with them. So, and men, I was pretty uncomfortable with men because, um, you know, I'd had a, a pretty uncomfortable relationship with my father. So, you know, there was a bit of men's work around. And so I started to do a bit here and there. Um, I met Warren Farrell, I think is his name, uh, The Myth of Male Power. So, so there was some, some men, there was some interesting men, male leaders. Robert Bly was, um, had written his book and that was in the circles that I, I don't know if I ever read those books. So it wasn't until recent years that I uh, have read um, The Warrior King Lover Magician. So, yeah. Yeah, right. So 1986, by the way, I was two years old in 1986. <laughs> so definitely a pioneer of men's work. You are, that's for sure. How, um, and, and so that was at the time, was that workshops? Was that like, uh, like books that you read also? Was there some way to interact with these men in person? Um, there was, I did a tantra, tantra workshop and I can remember doing, spending, you know, most of a day away from the women and with the men. Um, and also I did a, a longer weekly uh, men's workshop um, and that was in the 90s. I don't, I'm not sure exactly when in the 90s, I can't remember now, but uh, it was good and I, I started to get a, a feel for it. And then um, when I came up to Queensland, I did... Uh, some David Data men's workshops, quite a lot of them. And I, I really loved David Data's work. And he was coming to Byron Bay quite often at that stage as well. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I, I've been introduced to his work quite a few years ago as well. And I think, you know, for the time when he was, you know, doing that work in the 90s, he's a profound men's work teacher. And he's got um, John Wineland now leading a lot of men's work as well, more modern sort of guys are stepping through. So I think that's really cool. And you said you moved up from Queensland. So I guess this is probably a, a moment to talk about like childhood, upbringing, yeah. maybe where you grew up or where you were born, that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. No, I was born in Adelaide and then we moved to the Mornington Peninsula. So at Frankston and then, um, uh, my my brother and sister came along, so there's two years apart uh, from us and uh, between us. And um, then I um, then we moved to a number of country properties. I just really loved um, living in the country on the Mornington Peninsula. You know, I loved the weather. You know, when I was a kid, I just loved that that cold weather, and and um, it was just fantastic outside. And you know, we used to walk 
for miles. You know, we were free range kids. Often, you know, my generation talks about being free range kids. <laughs> and um, we, uh, I used to go to work with dad um, and he used to let me drive the, the car. So how old um, were you when he was doing that? Oh, look, I, I started going to work with him. Um, I think it was school holidays. I don't remember. Yeah, so it must have been six or seven, something like that. Mm -hmm. Quite young. And, you know, probably within a few years, I was um, allowed to um, operate the steering wheel. So he'd have the control of the brake and the clutch. Uh, and uh, you're gone. Oh, I just remember, I remember something similar as a kid and just having an absolute time of my life sitting on one of my parents' laps, my dad and my mom at two different instances. And that is just such a vivid memory for me is that, that feeling of like being in control of something and being like fully supported all at the same time. It's quite, yeah. quite a profound, you know, it sticks into our heads, like even mm -hmm. for you, you know, it's something that you remember. And would you say that you, um, you felt a connection to you? like either of your parents at that age or, you know, what was it like with your dad? What was your relationship like to your father? My relationship was really good. Um, I was, um, you know, I, I guess, you know, like I, I was his little man or something like that. So, so, you know, we went hunting, you know, we lived on, rural properties so he had he was actually a, a bit of a marksman in in um in the air force so he used to wear, win competitions so rifle competitions uh but he was a mechanic so i don't know if he ever put that to good good use he was never a, a sniper or anything like that anything um you know, that, that he'd be a hero for so he was just a hero with um loading up bombs into bombers to be delivered to Germany. So it was pretty, pretty interesting way to start your working life. Yeah, I bet. So that's what yeah. you went and did. You drove to places like that and worked with him on no, bases? No, no, actually he, he, he uh, couldn't wait to get out of England. So he was in England during the war and he came to Australia and met my mum, and then they, they had a family. Mm. Um, so he was actually a draper. So he, he was Jewish. And um, he hated the Jews. He just couldn't wait to get away from them. Um, so he became a Christian. And um, so, so we missed out on all of that culture. Mm. I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing, but it, it's certainly, you know, it's a very rich culture. That, uh, and I've got family members who, who still have a strong link to that. But, um, you know, we, we went out and shot rabbits when he was on the weekends. And, you know, that, that was certainly a highlight for me. So, mm. growing and, up. And so that relationship, did you, have you spoken to your father or did you ever speak to your father about his upbringing and being a kid as well? Did you ever get that link? Yeah, I was, quite, I was pretty interested because his father died uh, when he was a baby. So his father got a tooth infection so an infected tooth and uh, he just died um, from the infection so that was something that could happen when you were living in an era before um, antibiotics absolutely like yeah. life is life is precious but back then a lot of people passed like around yeah. early you know 20th century i'd say is just that I think people forget how, how fragile life is and how important yeah. it is, you know, to have someone pass from a sore tooth. Yeah. You know, these days that's like unheard of, mm. but that's the reality. And so you and your father, like it was something that he was quite open to you about, like sharing his experience or was that something that you sort of had to pry him open to? Look, I probably got more of it from my mother in the later years, but you know, obviously when he was, he, he died, you know, I was, I was curious and wanted to know more, but um, he would talk about his upbringing a little bit and he'd talk about the war a little bit too, mm. but uh, there was common themes. So he just was utterly appalled by the, the, the killing. So, so 
I don't know if he ever had to drag out um, air crew that was shot up, um, but he, he told me that um, you know often that the bombers would come back and the rear gunner or some of the gunners would be shot up. Um, and uh, he told me that uh, um, you know young men just couldn't handle it, so they'd walk into a propeller. So some of them just couldn't handle the war. Yeah, it's quite intense. The the upbringing that I think a lot of our generation, my my father's side is German, and they fled the war as kids and came to Australia by boat um, in the late fifties, and you know setting up in Australia in like the steelworks in Thoreau where my grandmother is still there now, you know, and just what the life was like different from, you know, trying to create a new, new life, new country and what Australia was like back then, which is very different to what it is now. Yeah. You know, so. Mm. It, it, um, you know, in some ways, I think that we still deal with the consequences of the Second World War because, uh, you know, some of the those parents were immensely traumatised by war, obviously, and they passed that down the generations. So, yeah, uh, for my parents, it was probably um, something they couldn't understand at all. Uh, me doing this search for you know, trying to heal my wounds and um, ex exploring my psychology mm. and, you know, certainly exploring my, my childhood. So um, my parents were, I, I think both of them were fairly well adjusted. So my father was reasonably well adjusted. He, he'd, um, you know, there, there was a bit of trauma there, but um, uh, my, my mother, you know, I think she was well adjusted. She, she lived a fairly privileged you know, upper middle class childhood. And she was a, you know, she was an attractive woman. And uh, he was this man from England and uh, she thought he was pretty interesting. And uh, so they that got sound, together. That sounds awesome. I love hearing about it. It's just like the, the thought of like our, our grandparents, you know, how they got together, the story of that, like love back then and how yeah. different life was, you know, like what an, what an epic tale to tell of people coming from another country and, you know, the whole culture thing as well, like two different cultures colliding. Where was your, yeah. where was your mum from? Where's... Oh, she was Australian and, and Australian for a few generations. Yep. So, um, I'm just trying to think, I think some of her family was here as little as three generations and as many as say four or five generations so i'd have to check up on that to, to know for sure but uh, so she grew up around yay in yep. um, victoria um and and stall as well her father was a bank manager yeah so what are what are some other defining moments now like as you're getting older and you've you know having time with your father and you you know getting these impacts from your parents, what what sort of uh, things do you distinctly remember that shaped you to who you are now? Yeah. The, the, my parents joined a, a religion. So they joined a church. It was a bit of an American cult, Christian church. And um, they preached, spare the rod, rod, spoil the child. And that became a really traumatic thing in, for me in the family. So mum you know really beat especially me and and the other kids as well but you know i was the oldest so i, I caught the, the first lot and um so a defining moment for me would be when i was six years old just being beaten by mum and it was like it just went on and on so the beating went on and on and i just like i wasn't expecting it but i, I also remember the same when I was about four as well. So like my earliest memories are of being beaten. And um, it, it's, it sort of surprised me. I talked about mum a fair bit of, or to mum about it a fair bit. And she just said it was the church. Um, I couldn't understand, you know, she'd grown up in a fairly loving family. She was the last child and so, 
any sort of um, quirks in their parenting style had been sorted out by the time the, the third one came along. So the youngest um, usually gets it the best, right? Yeah. So they say, in the, and yeah. the eldest cops it the worst. So yeah. having a mum that was the youngest and you being the eldest, yeah. you know, yeah. And the, the uncomfortable, like for the men out there and the, everyone that's listening, to be honest, is the, the uncomfortable conversations that we can have with our parents as adults. You know, I've had similar conversations with my mum about um, some of the childhood beatings I got as a kid and uh, and what an impact, what impact it had, you know, like here's this person that loves you and is also the person that's, you know, giving you some stick as well, you know. Yeah. So it's like as a young boy, I was very confused, you know, very confused that the person that loved me was also the person giving me a, a whipping every now yeah. and then. So, um you know, always very interested or curious to the men that do men's work that I'm having on this show talk about it, you know, because it opens up the conversation, I think, for for the listeners to have inquiries of their own and, and potentially have some uncomfortable conversations with their own parents or their own caregivers around, you know, what happened and why, you know. Yeah. And so to hear that it's, you know, church related and didn't really feel like it was your mum's want or desire, but it was like, societal pressure and all sorts of different things yeah look i think that um you know she just uh attached herself to you know the teachings of the church and this was a fundamental thing and so she thought she really thought she was doing the right thing you know there was beat the crap out of me regularly and um that would uh, make me a better person um but you know there was no love in it and my parents probably weren't natural uh, parents. So it wasn't like it was just something that happened, came along, and, and so they fell into it and, and they did the best that they could. Um, but their best wasn't very good. And it was, I certainly let them know, like I was doing a lot of personal growth work, and um, I certainly let them know that they did a crappy job. Um, how did that feel for you? Like in that moment of having yeah. the conversation with your parents around that, like the the bring like the vulnerability in that for you, Paul, must have been huge at the time. Yeah, um, I think that uh, I I was really lost. So I, I guess to continue the story a little bit. Um, my uh, my far, my relationship with my dad broke down when I was about 13, 12 or 13 and we just ended up at war but for the rest of our time like I tried to reconcile with him and tried to talk with him but we it was just it was pretty uncomfortable um, he was very negative and it's something that I carry as well so just a uh, Quite a, we naturally have a strong focus on looking to see what's wrong rather than looking to see uh, what's right. It's a natural psychological tendency. So I think it is. And I think that's also like I've spoken about this in men's work and men's group is like the magician and the dark side of the magician is the cynic, right? Like, but it's yeah. also that person inside of us that can see the fault in things because we're trying to make things as good as we can. Yeah. Like it's, it's always double-sided. Our negatives yeah. are also our strengths in a way as well and how sure. they shape us. So, you know, your, your inner detective and your inner critic is probably served you for anyone that might be wrongdoing as well, you know, which might've shaped the way that you do the things that you do now. Yeah. Well, that, that's a critical point. And that, um, you know, the inner critic, I, I didn't know what was wrong with me. So like I, I spent decades doing personal growth work and, and doing men's work, all sorts of work, everything. So but the thing that was missing was self-esteem, and I didn't realise that. So uh, I was listening to, a few years ago, listening to Kristen Neff, who did a lot of research into self-compassion, and that really made a big difference for me, and it, and it was something I became pretty passionate about being you know my own champion and, and uh i guess mentor encouraging 
that negative bias we have, you know, when we, when you're a hunter gatherer, you know, and you're dealing with uh, maybe um, hostile animals that are going to have you for lunch, you, you've got to have a negative bias. You've got to be looking critically around you. Mm. Um, and I think that's where it comes from, but uh, it's certainly well, it's talked about quite a lot now in psychology. So, yeah, definitely. And I mean, you know, that part of us, that survival, you know, habit in us is also, you know, weary around others or weary around, um, uh, leadership as well. Like, I feel yeah. like that part of me is like, you know, if my parents, you know, any man that I come across that has like a, you know, altercations with his parents can then lead to, you know, what trust does he have in authority, you know, as well. And I think that's healthy. Yeah. You know, I think that's always like, you know, at the time, like I'm doing my best as a parent, but at times like I'll say, oh, I just want it done because I just want it done. There's no actual real meaning behind it other than me just inflicting my will on yeah. somebody around it. Not, not with a hand or a fist, but just yeah. like, because I say so. And it's yeah. like, yeah, that, that really riled me up as well. So I can, I can, you know, I can relate and, and hear that. And the, the permission piece around our inner king, you know, blessing us with what we really truly want, the self-esteem aspect, mm. you know, and that inner, inner love, inner empathy for ourselves, you know, giving ourselves permission for what we want and not waiting for anyone else to give it to us, you know, not outsourcing our self-esteem. Yeah. Well, that, that's a really good point. See, the difference between self-esteem self-esteem and compassion is self-esteem is competitive, so you're always comparing, whereas, um, you know, that compassion, that tenderness for somebody, you know, I was quite good at, at giving that to women, but uh, not giving it to myself, and and that's so important. And, and I think that you learn that also being with men, uh, the Samurai Brotherhood uh, is amazing, I, I think, because it was stunning. To me, it was stunning the amount of compassion and, and love and tenderness between men. It just really uh, blew me away. It's something I'd never experienced before. Mm. So the last 15 months, you know, it presented its own challenges as well because I distrusted it a bit and pretty uncomfortable with it started to get a bit dysfunctional and you know started you know, just I was quite uncomfortable with it to begin with me too absolutely you know I think I think this day and age and I think um, the 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 comfortability around men to drop in and and take our mask off you know take the mask down in men's work and I think you know to build honest loving connections because it's so easy to what well, was easy for me to relate and interact with women because to me they were safe you know and there was other things that happened in my childhood that led me to feeling like men were unsafe women were safe and so you know it's been immensely healing for me around the last couple of years of doing men's work to you know connect in a deeper way to men and have that vulnerability be met both given and received you know yeah. the conversations that i've had with even yourself and and many of the other men in there are not conversations that I would have had three or four years ago. Yeah. You know, not the level of honesty that I actually have with myself and knowing that the deeper that I go is the deeper that men can trust me mm. as well. So that feels really good. And so the, what happened at high school, you know, we spoke about it your younger years, but what sort of like developed you more into the man that you are now? What were some of the triumphs or things that really like excited you as a kid that shaped you to be, you know, who you are as a young man next? Uh -huh. What's another rites of passage that you led yourself on? I, w I was really lost at high school, but um, I was at a good school and um, the, the, the boys my age were pretty supportive. I had one experience with a bully uh, and that really shattered my confidence, but I had a group of friends that were very supportive. I, 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 I reckon that I was one of the most dysfunctional kids in my year. So there's a few that, that weren't as dysfunctional or were more dysfunctional than me, but there weren't many. 
so yeah i just knew that there was something really fucking wrong with me and um that i needed some serious psychotherapy so i needed to make money and and spend some money on psychotherapy but um probably a rite of passage for me was um leaving school working a few jobs uh struggling there too with work um and then starting my own business so starting my own business was gave me a good foundation something a really a good structure in my life and you know i was quite good how did you get the confidence to start your own business we, we were pretty confident and pretty um self-sufficient family you know my my father had his own businesses so did my mother um my mother was a nurse we had a nursing home in rosebud um yeah it, they were always encouraging us to step out mm. so even collecting bottles of newspapers or what whatever we were encouraged to step out and be entrepreneurs i guess in some ways you know not necessarily using that term in, in those years but uh, yeah yeah awesome and so what was the what was your first business that you ran yeah i um decided that i was going to be a tree lopper so i could climb trees and so i thought i'd cut down these trees and make some good money so you know it, it evolved over the years at first um i climbed trees and cut them down with no belt just ropes ladders climbing you know it was it was amazing and and uh the, the level of um you know uh there was just very little real focus on occupational health and safety certainly <laughs> doesn't sound like it climbing yeah. trees with a chainsaw and a rope sounds yeah. pretty fun after after seven years i started using a belt and then after about another seven years i was you know quite i was up with the, the latest technology in terms of safety and climbing so we'd have two points of attachment um always you know it's certainly in the final years of my work in the industry we always had two points of attachment and that's pretty scary because um you know you can you can cut through a rope that you you know you're attached to very easily yeah. you know if you if you're not really focused where your ropes are and so having two points of attachment increases your safety a bit but uh you can still cut through too no sweat mm. yeah I've just recently i've just recently bought 10 acres of land and the amount of trees that i've cut down is immense and also just how quickly things can go pear shape just even lopping a basic small tree yeah. and how it can fall and how it can spin and how certain branches when you drop them can bounce back and all sorts of stuff so i couldn't imagine what it'd be like at the risk of, and the height as well yeah. everything else that's involved so it takes a i think it takes a lot of a lot of heart and a lot of balls to be honest to yeah. get up there and do that kind of work so it sounds to me like you're quite courageous in that sense it every day i, I came came home feeling like a hero so it was it was wonderful work i, I loved it running a business was you know it was a big you know it's a big job because quite often i'd do pretty much a full day cutting down trees and then i'd have to um do quotes in the evening so that was that was not you know that was hard work and i did it for 21 years so i was pretty exhausted you know some of the time into that and i was ready for a break and i wanted to sell my business and i guess that was another rite of passage selling my business and coming up to queensland Mm, tell me uh, more about that. Oh, uh, look, I I was never good at handling money. So I never really got ahead. So I never put money away when I was running the business, but I sold it for uh how much did I sell it for? It was, it was 90 something thousand, but once I'd paid off a few debts, there was about 70,000 left. And then I thought I'd make a fortune out of trading the stock market. And I didn't. <laughs> so I just didn't. And then so on the last bit of credit I had on my credit cards, I started buying land on Russell Island. 
and mm. that was a lot of fun. And within a couple of years, I was a millionaire suddenly, and and I didn't know how to handle millions of dollars. And so I, at the time, the 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 spruikers, the property spruikers, was saying borrow as much as you possibly could borrow. So I started borrowing money, and that got me into trouble. And about ten years later, I really struggling. Too much debt, property values were going down, and and I just, I was not able to make the repayment. So, and going back a bit, you know, I I put in a an application to to borrow two hundred thousand dollars, and uh, NAB initially knocked me back, and I got two hundred thousand from another company. But uh, three months down the track, NAB said. Oh yeah, we'll we'll lend you the money, and we'll we'll lend you six hundred and fifty thousand dollars. And I went yeehaw! Wow. So, and that that was on vacant land, no income. And I later on I found out the bastards had uh, inflated the tax returns that I gave them, and said that uh, I was earning seven hundred percent more than the tax returns that I gave them. So, wow, that's a big they, difference. Yeah, yeah. So. And that was that was what the banks, all the banks were doing. The ANZ did the same as well. So when I found that out, I decided that I was going to fight the banks instead of because they'd broken the law and committed fraud. But now was, for a man that's climbing trees and having a big set of cannons on him, taken after the monoliths of the bank, yeah. like talk about confidence. Where I, I I think in in um, you know, I, I, I thought about what sets you up in life, in your behavioural patterns. And I think that um, when you, if you grow up with a sense of injustice, and I certainly had that feeling with my dad, that at one stage I was so close to him. And then uh, within a year or so, I was... Um, I'd lost my connection with him. So lost the love that I had with him. So standing up to somebody big, like a big corporation just fills me with um, glee in a way. I just, I think it's funny. And it, the, the funny thing about it is, you know, you're like a, uh, a flea biting an elephant. You can spoil <laughs> its whole day. For those of you who can't see, Paul's just stand, like sitting up like, 10 inches taller right now talking about this lit uh, up so yeah so what happened like what was that what was that like for you because like for the listeners out there they could listen to just like the data of the story but what we yeah. always try and do in men's work is like what was the visceral sensation what's the feeling what's the what's the experience you're having in your body around that and at the time do you think that you could pass on to these people that are listening to hear the the gold inside of it like what's the deeper truth inside of it for you i, I well you know it's been a great journey uh a, a learning journey that, that that there's a time to fight and there's a time most of the time it's a better strategy to avoid fighting mm. so I don't know if I can answer the question about the feelings. It's for me, it activated my warrior. Mm. And that's really important. And, and it's been a great journey learning about the warrior and learning about, uh, you know, great warriors like um, Masashi, uh, was a, a samurai, probably the, the world's greatest warrior. I don't know if that's true, but uh, he, he wrote some of his stuff down. So it got recorded and there's quite a lot of accounts of uh, his exploits as well. But uh, the, um, the Art of War by Swanza is um, often referred to in universities and uh, often quoted. It's a, it's a great man, two and a half thousand years old, but it's a great manual on warfare and and how to conduct yourself. But in the art of war, it says the greatest warrior wins the battle without, without fighting. Sure and does. I, 
I had to learn that very recently, like how to, if you've got somebody who's really antagonistic and, and how to avoid doing battle with them because I was in a losing position. So, you know, it, it was with my agent. So I'm a tenant. There was nothing to, to, there was no win. And I've had disagreements with landlords before. And honestly, it doesn't turn out good. Even if you're right, no. even if you go to court, you just, you just get screwed over. So my lesson in that was uh, being a young teenager at school and trying to fight with my teachers. <laughs> and it just was never going to go well. And now I have right. a teenager that does the exact same thing. You know, and it's the conversation of like, you really got to pick your battles there because yeah. that, that's, they can basically say whatever they want to say. They don't have to report anything that you said. They can just make it up, which they did last week to my son, you know, and it's the, the injustice of that for my son is that he just boils over with anger yeah. and the anger is okay, but it's like, you know, you've really got to choose your battle. Yeah. You really got to choose your battle. Yeah. You've got to walk away and you've got to be willing to lose. And, and you know, there are really important battles. So, you know, we've got uh, a government which is really corrupt. Most of our governments are, you know, corrupt to, to one degree or another. And, you know, as the community, we should be standing up to them, but most people don't. And shame's a shame's a very powerful unmotivator to the population that's what i see at the moment um with my studies with psychotherapy it's you know shame's a very powerful tool to use and i see it being used by our current government quite a lot yeah. to shame people into doing certain things or to feel a certain way and you know my understanding deeply now is you you cannot make someone feel a certain way it's really up to the person to feel that yeah. you know if i say something to you paul that you don't like and then you have a reaction. That's your reaction. Not that I made you feel that way. It's your choice, you know, yeah. and the same with us, with the government. It's like, they're very good at advertising their agenda in whatever format they want to try and initiate the feeling that they can get from us, the people. So I kind of, I resonate with what you're saying for sure. And just noticing how it impacts and how it can play out for all of us. I tell you what, I reckon that they're going to be so easy to defeat. That's the thing is that we don't know how powerful we are. And it's something that's often said, but uh, until I think that's the, the big thing about being interested in history and, and reading a lot of history. Um, revolutions can be triggered very easily and you know, those in power can lose power really, really easily. Mm -hmm. And we need to be a little bit more savvy and a little bit more um, willing to take a stand and willing to fight for, you know, having decent outcomes in our community. Yeah. And I think it just starts, you know, for so many of us like yourself that had something personal happen where they did take on the elephant, you know, and that you don't die when you do take on something big, but it is possible. Or you do then unite with other people that are in a similar boat. Like yeah. I always realize for myself, it's like, if I feel very vulnerable about something and I do feel like the, the, the flea on the elephant, as soon as I speak to it, I end up finding that there's actually a hundred other people yeah. that are in the same boat as me that feel very similar. And I think for so many of us, especially men in this society in our day and age, is that we feel very isolated. We feel very alone and disempowered and sort of left just to go to work every day and not really know who to talk to or who to who to turn to for support or just having a chin wag with somebody, you know? And to me, that's the power of men's work. And, you know, obviously I did that through Landmark Education's work and realizing that, you know, men can be on mission and men can be fired up about their lives. They don't need to just go along with the narrative once they realize that they're actually in a narrative, you yeah. know? And was that something for yourself was like, when did you realize that you wanted to do things different? Well, I was always interested in politics. So I had a bit of a, a social conscious and conscience. If it, I, I guess I was always interested to see our country do well and 
people um, to do well, Australians to do well. So, and I was noticing that governments, you know, were more interested in their mates. You know, that that's pretty clear pretty early on when, when you start looking at politics. And and in, in Australia, the, the, the governments and the big businesses, they're very corrupt. And it's a soft sort of corruption. It's a sneaky corruption. It's um, where businesses influence governments to do their bidding rather than the people's bidding. And, you know, even occasionally where you've got banks that uh, indulge in outright criminal behaviour, which, you know, I think that, I don't think that that happens quite as often as, you know, just the, the softer form of corruption where influences peddled. But, um, you know, the, the banks have been outrageously disgusting in their behaviour and the governments have, you know, started to water down the rules and the laws very quickly after the Royal Commission into the banking behaviour. So it, it's sad to see and, and it's going to end in grief. That it's going to, there's going to be another banking crisis because where you've got really bad criminal behaviour, where you've got really corrupt governments and businesses and banks, you know, the inevitable is going to happen and um, uh, we'll have another banking crisis and the, the government will have to run in and uh, prop up the banks. It'll happen again and it'll cost the community a lot of money and hopefully when it happens that uh, they'll fix the problems, fix the systemic problems finally. So I have seen that. I just saw recently something in Sri Lanka, you know, where they're basically out of money. They've got no money to create yeah. any imports. So now they've got sh food shortages. And I guess the, the thing that I see is like, what's the bigger picture here? You know, if it's just banks, like, is that such a big deal? But I think it's people not fully understanding the flow on effect. And that to me is like, as far as like my learnings in, in psychotherapy and in men's work is like that king bird's eye view of the world. Like not just looking at my own life, but then my community man on a mission really, you know, is trying to be a, a leader in his community and the greater community. So my thing is to keep coming back, like how far back can I look at this picture overall? So, you know, talking to you about it and you're starting to, you know, you really see the bigger, the bigger picture inside of it, you know, yeah. and the warning signs of that. I yeah. feel it as a pressure because I think, well, right now, because we're all in lockdown, and, you know, a lot of things are happening in Australia where I feel like not like not everyone's working like they have. So what happens to the economy and what's the long-term effect of that? And, you know, to me, my thought is interest rates can't stay this low forever. Yeah. And, and because I'm right into history like you are, I only have to look back to, was it the 90s or the 80s when Paul Keating was in and interest rates were at 18%. So yeah. if any person that's got a mortgage now wants to do a few calculations on 18% per annum, interest on their repayments at currently and just see what sort of impact that would have on their life it's like we're not far off that you know yeah. there's there's every chance it could happen again so what is your plan what's the not you particularly but for the listeners like what's our future look like what what are we doing to to look out for what's going to come up what's happening and so i guess the next thing that i'd you know i'd love to find out paul is just like the part that I love to talk to men about is their understanding of when did they learn that vulnerability is a strength? That was... Um, What's your story that you've got yeah. for yourself? So I was about 27 and I went to a psychologist. I can't remember how that... I think maybe I met him or something like that. I just got interested in psychology. So I went along and I did quite a few appointments with a psychologist. And I was fascinated with psychology. I, I saw that it was the answer to all of my problems. So, yeah. So um, then I saw a, an advert for a course, which was relationships, intimacy and relationships at Can Miller Institute in Melbourne. And I went along to that for, I did 
I think I did six years there and I loved it. So there was a lecture about psychology. So it was everyday psychology that you could use in your life so that you'd understand how, how humans operate. And after that, we had an hour and a half as a group, in a group. So it was like a, uh, an encounter group, just like men's group. And we got around and we shared our feelings and I started to learn to express my feelings. It was demanded of us that we don't go into story and we don't go into theory. I hate theory. Somebody's theory on what, what, what's what. And um, so with some fairly persistent encouragement, I learned to express my feelings. And, and I guess that was, that was, I don't know if I ever saw it as a strength. I guess I did in, in terms of when I was going out with, you know, various girlfriends, they, they think it was a strength in me that I could, you know, I had uh, that social uh, intelligence that, that I could express exactly what was going on for me. And, and, and then I was in touch with my feelings and, and could express my grief or, you know, I knew this stuff, you know, that I'd learned mm. yeah, for being in groups. Yeah. There's so much power in it and the power and the vulnerability of sharing and, you know, asking for what you want and also just like being in touch with knowing how you're feeling in any given moment yeah. without, without going off the rails or separating from yourself or dropping so much into the story that it becomes like, a heady conversation with your you and your own ego rather yeah. than dropping into the to the feeling of what's really what's really going on and i think you know we we mentioned it before we jumped on the podcast was around um you know men being on mission do you feel like they're how would you encourage more men to do that in their own life okay so just coming back to just going back one step back to the the, the vulnerability is a strength. That's something that I think that the, the men in Samurai Brotherhood personify. And you personify it as well, because, you know, you're a big, strong man. You, you are very good socially. You're a very good communicator. And yet you can still uh, express the softness and the tenderness that, um, you know, you, you're capable of expressing. So you, so that's just to follow on from the previous point, but um, man, man on a mission. Um, it's interesting because I've really thought about it a lot recently with um, being in Samurai Brotherhood, seeing some really awesome men and, and knowing their potential and being impatient for them to take on some sort of something in the community, you know, they could do anything. They could run and uh, they could in, engage in politics. They could engage in all sorts of different, um, you know, make different contributions in the community. And I think that's really important. And I, I guess that that will happen. I'm a very keen environmentalist, so I'm really passionate about saving the planet and, and um, dealing with a whole range of um, environmental issues. I, I think that uh, with um, the planet it is in a really precarious position and it's uh, very sad to see. So that's, that's a mission that, that lights me up. Mm. and uh, was there anything else that i had to answer in no it's just like question? You know, this is all just a conversation that yeah. we're going through then that's like to me that seems like it's what's currently lighting you up is the environment yeah you know and i think you know some might say oh but you used to chop down trees but it's just like you know there's there's work and there's rejuvenation regeneration like i've been a landscaper and i've planted thousands of trees in my life i'm probably you know it probably all evens out, but it's just like, what currently do you see or foresee? You know, I, I kind of think about it like my wife's Nana is 94 and I consider what the life was like for her growing up as a teenager 
and where the world was to where it is now because for so yeah. many of us you know my son included like my my generation me particularly 36 is i grew up with the internet but also without it so yeah. i also was a free-range kid yeah you know but not long after i was a free-range kid no more kids were free range you know yeah. so it's like what are you currently seeing or what are you sort of like what's lighting you up as far as what's next and what's happening for you i i think it's a really interesting time in in, in history and i think the whole covid situation highlights a really big problem and that um you you've got uh, the anti-vaxxers, and I, I saw quite a lot of their posts were saying that the anti-vaxxers, the anti-vaxxers were saying that, you know, the regular people are sheep. And I, I took offence to that because I'm mainstream or my, my I love science. I have a, a fair degree of understanding just because I listen to a lot of science, a lot of medical science. I have a fair understanding of what, um, the government's trying to do and what the bureaucrats are trying to do and the medical profession's trying to do. Um, I reckon all three are pretty incompetent. And I think that there's, I think we should have a Royal commission in the way it's been handled, but. Uh, <laughs> I agree I, because I, I think, I think for us is, I think we're probably on the different side. We're literally on the different side of a border right now, but yeah. I think we're also on a different side of like our beliefs around COVID yeah, sure. and that's okay too. Yeah, you know, sure. I think this is the other side is like, we're not going to have a huge discussion on that, but we can still absolutely love and respect each other and have these kinds of conversations. And like most of us with a healthy distrust for the government can still agree that, you know, maybe it's not being held the best way. Yeah. You know, and I, I agree with so much of what you just said, you know. I'm really critical of the anti-vaxxers though. Um, I don't know if you want me to use that term, but um, I, and I guess that to, to me, they seem like the black sheep. There's either the regular sheep and they're all just following along and don't really necessarily have an opinion about uh, the way things have been handled. Maybe they do in, in certain areas. But, uh, and then there's a black sheep and they're criticizing everything. And they, they're using some criticisms that have come from some really diehard anti-vaxxers. One of them was called Michael Yeadon. And um, I had a number of people send me his video and I reckon he didn't say anything that was true. And it, practically everything he said was lies. Mm. But the point I'm making is that we, we live in an era where there is fake news and there's fake science. And how the hell is the ordinary person who's not a specialist going to work out what's what? And even how when the scientists, gonna... even when the scientists are disagreeing, like how are we yeah. meant to know? That's another hard truth that we're currently facing. And this is why... In, in my opinion, it always just comes back to what you think is best for you, you know, and what Paul thinks is best yeah. for Paul. Because, like, obviously, Paul's at a different risk rate than what I'm at. Yeah. And, and, and each person has to weigh up, you know, their understanding of it to the best of their knowledge. Like all of us, the same as a parent, we do the best we can with what we know. And for some of us, we go really deep in what we try and know. And we can mm. go down our own biases. Like I'm yeah. really lucky that I have people on both sides yeah. that I can talk to because I've got people that are very anti and I've got people that are very pro. And I spent so much time talking to the pro people so I could understand. Because my thing is, yeah. like I said yeah. earlier, is what's the bigger picture? Yeah. What's the, what's the bigger hole here? Because it's not like I'm all or one. I've had my vaccinations, but I'm not, I haven't had my, my COVID treatments, the mRNA treatments, because to me, they're not, a, they're not a vaccine, you know, and it's just like understanding mm. what the treatment means and all that sort of stuff. Like my, my, both my parents have, you know, and it's yeah. just like, that's okay too. Like I love them mm. to bits. It doesn't change that, mm. you know, absolutely doesn't change that. But, you know, what worries me is like, the, the conversation and what's happened to the entire world over it. Yep. 
and where this leads, you know, with, with people having freedoms taken away in a country that's meant to be free, even the state legislation, like, wow, like we can really have a difference here where mm. now we can't go and freely move around and that should be okay. Like that really, I'm thinking like, I could understand where 2010 to 2020 went, but I have no idea what 2020 to 2030 looks like right now. I'll tell you that uh, history rhymes. And in um, 1919, we had a flu outbreak, the Spanish flu. Many people will know about that. And yep. uh, the borders were closed then. So, you know, and Australia survived that. So, you know, I think in a year's time, we'll have moved on and we'll have much bigger things, much bigger concerns. I think that we'll have, uh, we, you know, we've got an outrageous property boom at the moment. And I, I listen to a lot of economists and a lot of them are saying that the, the bubble will burst at some stage and, you know, that the economic consequences could be very similar to other times in history, like uh, 2008, global financial crisis, or, you know, you look back to the Great Depression in the, in the 1930s. So, you know, I don't think it's necessarily going to be like either of those, but it's certainly a lot of people, a lot of economists are predicting a, a decent shakeout. So we'll be I, grappling with that. Hmm. And I think um, yeah, COVID will be something in the past. That's something that you can definitely count on as people forgetting the past very quickly, yeah. especially with our modern media. Yeah. So whatever's whatever's bigger next will yeah. be definitely whatever people get people's attention. And in yeah. the last two years, we've definitely had a lot of attention and even a lot of deep discussion at men's work being largely around, yeah. you know, this very thing, like, you know, and knowing, knowing you, Paul, and knowing how, how much you care about the environment, what do you see is going to happen around that in the next 10 years? Do you have any predictions around what we can do? Look, I, I think it's uh, both with ANZ, I'm actually in the final stages of sorting ANZ back out because uh, the evil bastards, uh, you know, should not be allowed to um, commit crimes. And, and I've got to settle with them because so I've got some outstanding um, legal matters to, to settle with them. But uh, so that should happen next month. But with, with the, the government, I see that we need to sort the bastards out. And I, I really loved, at the la end of the last election, I was so pissed off that the Liberals got back in. That, um, and, you know, Labor was quite idealistic with what they wanted to do with the environment, and I thought that was good. Um, I, I'd noticed Extinction Rebellion in, in the UK, and Extinction Rebellion was... Uh, I, I guess a lot of people know they block roads and do, you know, that their, their business is civil disobedience and disruption. So they reckon that we're destroying the planet. So business as usual, that all of us going about our business is really destroying the planet. And I'd certainly agree with that. Um, and that we need to stop what we're doing. And it, it's not completely stopping. It's just we need to adjust our behavior so that we're not destroying the planet. And so we've got a federal election coming up and uh, so I, I really desperately want to sort out my issues with ANZ banks so that I can move on to the government. I'm very excited about uh, uh, some protest action as the election approaches. I think it's, um, I'm very interested in becoming a leader uh, in forging some uh, uh, new ideas or, or some some, some tried and true ideas around democracy because we ain't got a decent democracy in this country. It's really, it's a pretend democracy where we get to vote once every three years and the government doesn't give a shit about us in between time, um, particularly because they reckon that they can manipulate us with some decent uh, political adver advertising come election time. And people don't you know, change their vote that often so easily so they either vote for Tweedledum or Tweedledee it definitely feels that way definitely feels like that as a young man for myself like growing up just going well 
you know, what difference does it make, really? At the end of the day, it feels very like... I hate to say that people, I feel like, would just waste their vote. Like, they don't really give it too yeah. much thought. And yeah. it's like, it does matter, but it also feels like it doesn't matter. And so, what I'm hearing from you, you're saying that, you know, politically, that's the best way you can make changes to the environment. Well, it's an important thing, um, elections. And you can you can influence, as an individual, you can influence the election quite a lot. One of the things you can go along, especially if you're interested in minor parties, is go along and uh, participate in handing out how to vote cards. And that you can sway quite a few hundred votes, every individual that does that. Um, I, I don't know if that's such a um, so effective for the major parties, if you're into the major parties, but I'm interested in protests. So at the last state election, I protested against corruption um, at the polling booths um, with our local LMP member who didn't particularly like my, my ideas of um, protest. But uh, I thought it was good fun. And, and I, I really wanted to remind Australians that uh, the um, Great Barrier Reef is really in dire straits. Uh, there's massive coral bleaching on the, the Great Barrier Reef. And also, you know, we'd just come through horrific fires. And I thought that the Greens were pathetic and that they did not really push that issue at election time. And I thought that they should have. And so, damn it, I was going to do it. So, mm. and Does damn it, I'm going to do it the next election too. Well, if Paul Herman can go for president or for prime minister, then, you know, yeah. I'm happy to support that. Thanks. But I'm really interested in a career as an activist. And I, there's a whole lot of areas where big businesses really badly corrupt governments. One of the areas that I think is really a deep concern and way more important than COVID situation is uh, the, the level of obesity in Australia. So that's right through all the age groups, but especially it's so concerning with children that, uh, you know, a child, as soon as they're conceived, very often they're conceived to parents that are obese and then we're fed garbage by companies that don't give a shit about our children. And as far as I'm concerned, they're corporate pedophiles. And the bastards, we need to fucking do something. We need to get off our lazy butts and actually smash these pricks. <laughs> I hear you. Lesson. I hear Teach you. Them a you know, I was I was myself a quite a uh, overweight kid. I was 120 kilos when I was 14. Um, I was active and I was playing football and other things, which did help. Yeah, but it was good. just my severe lack of understanding nutrition. Yeah. And just basic nutrition, you know, yeah. the same, the very same basic nutrition I've tried to help my son with, you yeah, know, who's good. a, who's a 14 year old, six foot three, hundred kilo kid, you know, like yeah. he's a giant. So it's like, you know, making sure that he doesn't tip the scales himself and stays as active as he possibly can. But, yeah. you know, I think that's, that's so much related with, you know, the correlation to watching TV and what's advertised to us and food. Yeah. You know, if we think about our phones being very addictive because, you know, computer scientists are on the other side of that and computer engineers are on the other side, making it as addictive as possible, consider who's making your food. If you yeah. buy it out of a box, what is, what's in it that's going to make it so good that your brain just lights up and yeah. wants more of it. And there's a really good podcast by Andrew Herberman um, called Herberman Lab or Huberman Lab. And uh, he's a Harvard guy and um, he talks about it a lot, talks about addiction as well. Yeah. And just that when we, uh, when we get addicted to something, our, our desire goes up for it, but our pleasure goes down. So we get, more, we get more and more addicted to something that gives us less and less of a hit. Mm. And I just consider that for all, particularly in men who can be very uh, uh, prone to addiction is just noticing that for ourselves. Where is something right now in our life that we want to do more and more, but we actually get less and less of a buzz out of, right. you know, systematically through our society. 
Is there anything else, Paul? Is there anything else that you want to share with the with the listeners yeah. today? Yeah, there's. Um, I guess the Samurai Brotherhood is changing its name soon, and and for me, it's been uh, an outrageous experience of men's support and uh, men's love. You know, I tell you what really freaks me out is when a man says, "I love you, Paul," and I'm like, "Fuck." <laughs> and they like, and they mean it yeah and there's so much so much warmth and you know some of the men are, are just so amazing in uh the brotherhood stay tuned because i think the name's changing i don't know if you know the new name but um nothing's uh, been we had a conversation today all the leaders of each samurai brotherhood division um, in the world, uh, got together this morning and we had a conversation and that information is still not a hundred percent decided, yeah. but you know, mm. there's definitely wants and desires for me myself, but you know, the, the current political, uh, landscape that we're all in where words create huge meanings for some people and can be very triggering is, yeah. you know, I'm, there's a part of me that's disappointed by that. And there's a part of me that like most of us in Australia, where we're not affected like other countries are. So, you know, this organization of the Samurai Brotherhood being from Canada, they have a very different political uh, landscape over there. And especially around the meanings around words yeah. and around gender and all sorts of things. So, you know, cultural appropriation and all sorts of things, which I feel like, are, you know, it was never the intention. The Samurai Brotherhood's meaning was always just around a code, yeah. you know, and, and, and connection and discipline and, you know, the meaning being taken somewhere else. And, you know, I feel like it's the growth of the organization too, though. And I feel like that's a really good thing because it's a beautiful organization. Um, but, you know, as always, it'll, it'll have a special place in my heart. You yeah, know, it's one of the reasons why I got to meet you, Paul. So, yeah, you know, I'm super grateful for that. Yeah. And I guess I'd just yeah, send the message out that uh, if you can connect with this organization, it is an amazing organization and it's just had such a powerful impact on me and solidified uh, my journey as a man. And that's mm. been, and it's just, I've just formed so many beautiful connections with men and just, really relished and loved you know every every moment of my time mm. well i've loved chatting to you today mm. i really thank appreciate you. your time and all your passion and connection that you've yeah. brought so thank you so much and we'll have you on again soon yeah thank you Lindsay, for for this podcast <laughs>